Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A note of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, bringing you high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. Today is November 14th, 2019. I'm Owen Michael. My co-host, Billy Jensen, is out of town this week. Our guest this week is Andrew Morantz. Among many other accomplishments, a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine and author of the new book, Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Welcome, Andrew. Thank, Thank you for being here. Thanks today. for having me. Yeah, so Much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, so I haven't had a, a chance to read the entire thing. Tell us, a, tell us about the book. So it's um, on one level, it's kind of a taxonomy of all the weirdos on the internet. In a sense, there's a lot of, you know, in another in another sense, it's a more of a deep conceptual exploration of how we got to the place where our informational ecosystem is so fundamentally broken. I think everybody who has ever been on the internet kind of feels that something about the way we've built this stuff is not working. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to sort of get to the bottom of why, in a, in a sense, why that is. And, you know, it's it's complex and, and multifactorial, but I also, I didn't want to just make it an argument. I didn't want to just do a screed about like, you know, some people have picked it up and seen, oh, anti-social. This is probably your like argument about why you're anti-social media. Mm-hmm. It's not really that. I mean, part of it is that. Part of it is, you know, here are some of the downsides of social media that we don't think about enough. But a lot of it is not as much polemic and opinion driven as it is really sitting and immersing myself for three years with these two groups of people, the online extremists and the techno-utopians. And the reason they're so interrelated is that, you know, a lot of these disruptors, these sort of young coders and dudes who wanted to change the world, they did change the world, but they changed it in many different ways, some of which were pro-social and some of which were anti-social. And they were only thinking about the former. They were only thinking about the ways in which they were going to bring everyone together and Mm -hmm. strengthen the social fabric. And they sort of just hoped that that would happen like more or less automatically and they didn't really think about all the downsides that could come of it. And it's like anything else when you flood people with freedom and, and you know, new systems of choice that they're not used to. Mm-hmm. Some of it is going to be really nice and nice stuff is going to filter out of it. But some of it is going to make people go a little nuts. And we just we spent the first 10 years of, of social media just kind of thinking that only one would happen and not right. the other. It just looks so naive right. in retrospect. And so I wanted to really embed with the people who were taking advantage of this power vacuum. Not only explain how the power vacuum was formed, but watch how people are manipulating it in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fascinating. And uh, you're right. Over the past year or so itself, I mean, I've read explicitly online about uh, people talking about, you know, social media is almost the 
decline and fall of uh, democracy. This is what it keeps, you know, that's a little bit overstated mm-hmm. maybe, but mm-hmm. it is, it feels a little wild west out there. Maybe not as much as it was 10 years ago. Although the, uh, the, as you say, the extremist part of it is definitely out there. And what you just brought up about, you know, we, we think of Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, particularly right now, just saying, you know, this is about free speech and just going to be hands off or Google's original thing. Don't be evil, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, kind of a libertarian uh, hands off type of thing. And of course, it's going to turn out all right. We're, we're finding out that, uh, you know, anybody that takes a, a stroll on uh, social media these days, trolling is not just uh, under the bridge anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's larger than social media. That's a whole there, there's a whole kind of American tradition of sort of saying yeah. the arc of history will naturally bend toward justice the marketplace of ideas will naturally sort everything out. The internet guys didn't invent that. That's mm-hmm. something that the politicians and lots of people have been telling themselves for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't naturally automatically work out that way. You got to earn it. You got to make, I mean, the arc of history bends the way we bend it. It doesn't just bend itself. So, and, and, and again, the reason I wanted to embed with people and be a fly on the wall and really watch them do it, how they did it was not that I am a masochist and I love being around propagandists and people who are trying to destroy the fabric of democracy. Right. But because I feel like it's really important to see specifically how they do it, not just sort of everybody kind of knows there's disinformation and trolls and propagandists out there. But the fact that I was willing, you know, I contacted them and they were willing to say, yeah, come to my house and watch me destroy democracy. I mean, they didn't say it in so many words. Right. But I would go sit and watch people and just see specifically how they reverse hack news cycles to take their fringe talking points and propel them into the mainstream conversation. Yeah, and it's it, it's shocking to to see how easily it's done. Uh, particularly, everybody is digitally fluent these days. But uh, as far as the, the behind the scenes, how it's actually uh, happening is manipulable. Um, you spent three years, is mm-hmm. that right? So there's also a little bit of a. Um, I think you referred to this. Uh, I've heard you speak elsewhere. Being self aware of the fact that yes, these guys a women too, uh, may take Someone, you as a, a, a sort of a, a resource to be exploited or, you know, we, you're, a, you're one of these mainstream writers, you're, you're a globalist, you're a media elite type of a thing. We despise you, or at least we think you're a tool of the, the, the system or whatever, but we definitely want you to, uh, tell our story a little bit mm-hmm. or, or observe it, or that they have the idea that they're going to manipulate you and, and, and do this thing. Talk about a little bit about how did you, how did you acknowledge that there's a give and take here? Like how cynical was that? How, how, how did that get received? Yeah. It, so some of it, you know, I didn't want to sort of be naive and tell myself like, oh, these people, you know, I'm not helping them in any way. They're gaining nothing from me. I mean, I think I had to, to reckon with and it really it was hard for me to reckon with the fact that in some sense, by paying any attention at all to these people, you're giving them some bit of what they want. Mm-hmm. The problem, though, is that. In some cases, with certain types of misinformation or disinformation or just hate speech or whatever, it is better not to amplify it, even if you are amplifying it only to rebut it or only to point at it and say, how dare you, sir? You know, sometimes it's better to just leave it alone. The problem is that if you always leave it alone, then you're missing an opportunity to point out, show things for what they are and to help people inoculate themselves and to help them see the playbook. I mean, a part of me, I just felt like we're spending all this time worrying about Russian trolls and and foreign state actors from Iran and China and what are they up to? And that's all worth sort of thinking about and worrying about. But at the same time, you know, there are people out there in the open, not anonymous American citizens Mm -hmm. showing you their face, showing you their name, who you don't need subpoena power to reach. You Mm -hmm. can just send them an email and they'll say, 
yeah, come on by. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not even breaking the rules of the platforms I'm right. using. They, in fact, are hacking these platforms in ways that are exactly how the platforms are supposed to be so used. digital jujitsu, of course, uh, yeah. of, of a certain way. Totally. And, and along the same lines with, with fake news and sort of the degradation of discourse in general. Um, you know, in my hopeful aspect, sometimes I think that this is sort of like a necessary, um, you know, this is the necessary evolution, all this nasty, dirty, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, some of this unpleasant stuff out there is necessary to sort of get through, to come through on the other side. But maybe that's too idealistic in that, that I, I feel like maybe in five or 10 years, we'll be aware enough of the ways that these things are being manipulated and the people who are sort of pulling the strings on this kind of stuff and be a little bit more sophisticated about this. Uh, after you spent three years doing this, do you have a, a, a sort of a pessimistic or an optimistic or are you just yeah. kind of neutral on the thing? I think that, I think that the, the best way to see it is not pessimistic, not optimistic and not neutral. The way I describe it in the book is, is a, a view that philosophers call contingency, mm-hmm. which is rather than sort of just believing that ultimately the glass will be half full or ultimately the glass will be half empty, really believing that where we are going is determined specifically by where we are and how we got here and really taking care to know, okay, the arc of history is going to bend in exactly the way that people bend it. So it doesn't mean that you despair and throw up your hands and say, there's nothing we can do, but nor does it mean that you sort of say, okay, we'll just wait it out. And then in the long run, it'll be okay. You actually just have to build the information ecosystem you want to see. So we're pretty good at this in other areas when we see a, a, a crisis looming in a big complicated system. And when you see a city infrastructure crisis, you say, well, we really need to get to work building some better infrastructure. Mm-hmm. When you see a, a highway system that doesn't work and people keep crashing their cars, you say, we better build a better highway. Somehow with this internet stuff, we keep talking about individual agency or like, well, that person shouldn't have crashed their car. Or, you know, once the, all the bad drivers get off the road, then we'll be okay. I think we just need to build a better highway system. I think the, the, the way we fundamentally built the social media algorithms to be around emotional engagement and to prize and prioritize and create feedback loops to reward people who can create the most immediate spikes of emotion, high activating, specifically negative antisocial emotion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've built the system and we're getting the results that we incentivize in that system. So if we want better results, we got to build a better system. And it's so easy to hijack. I mean, I would watch, you know, talking about these people who let me in, I would sit at their shoulder and they would sort of say, okay, today we're going to create an association between Hillary Clinton and disease. Even though we don't have evidence that she has a disease, we just want, we think that'll suppress voter turnout. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I would just watch, you know, the the one guy, for example, just open his periscope, uh, open an an iPad and start a periscope video and say, all right, guys, what's our hashtag going to be today? And everybody would get in the room and in the comments sort of suggest hashtags and they would workshop it kind of brainstorm what's the best, most sticky viral hashtag that'll create the most disgust, the most resonant emotion. Go to Twitter, get that hashtag trending. Then once it's trending, then it becomes a thing that journalists start paying attention to. Right. And they, they even feel like they have to pay attention to so it. So it creates its own momentum. And then it goes to the, and then, and you could just watch how the news cycles, I mean, these people just are very observant and they're good at creating, they're good at reverse engineering the news cycles to the point that once it leaps from Twitter to Drudge, to Fox, to CNN, to the newspaper, I could pick up the newspaper the next day and go, this story has this this troll's fingerprints on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm also struck by um, the aspect of social media in the the sense that uh, if you've got somebody who's 
workshopping this stuff. It's not one leader or one guy who is saying, I'm calling the shots and then here are my minions and do this. This is sort of group think. It's mm-hmm. a workshopping. It's that kind of thing, which is ideally what the things like Twitter and Facebook and that kind of thing are designed to do. So as you say, it's, uh, it's well within the situation. Um, do you have thoughts on the difference recently between what Facebook's stance is regarding political advertising and the way that uh, Twitter came out? Uh, I mean, you know, we're, we'll cover a lot of different stuff, but yeah. we're going down uh, per- uh, this particular moment as far as a uh, paid political advertisement. Um, Mark Zuckerberg famously is saying, you know, we're not, we're hands off on that stuff. Um, he's run into a lot of uh, uh, resistance on that. And it almost seemed like Jack at uh, Twitter sort of took that and said, I don't want any part of that. We're going to do it. We're going to do the opposite. What do you think uh, about yeah. that, uh, the entire situation? Yeah, I, I do think it's pretty clear that Jack Dorsey at Twitter saw an opening to get a, a round of positive press by saying, okay, Facebook's not going to handle this problem. We're going to handle it. And he did get some positive press. The, the thing is, so Facebook's solution is to say, if you're a politician, we're not going to touch what you do. You can say whatever you want. Twitter's solution is to say no political advertising at all. I think those are both really flawed. I think, and, and, and I think what, what it shows is how a lot of these people are very, um, they like to have big, broad, simplistic answers to these questions. Mm-hmm. They like to have an answer that just says, boom, on switch or off switch, you know. And to me, the really nuanced solutions are always going to be somewhere more in a, in a more of a gray area than that. And it's less satisfying from a PR point of view but it's actually closer to the right answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, to go back to the highway analogy, you know, should we just have no highways or should we have highways that have no yeah. <laughs> speed Absolutism limits? doesn't, uh, it doesn't, doesn't get you very far. And so with the political ads, it's like, okay, you don't want to have completely unchecked permission for anybody to put out disinformation because the, the, the flaws of that are obvious, but there's lots you can do to, to, to reduce the amount of micro targeting that the way these ads can be targeted to specific people who are the most vulnerable to the misinformation uh, the way that you make money from it, the way you uh, are transparent about where the money's coming from, there's a lot of stuff you can do to build out a better system. And similar with, with Twitter re- rejecting political ads altogether, you know, you so now if you're a, a group trying to uh, create awareness about climate change, right. you're not allowed to advertise. But if you are an oil company, you are allowed to advertise. Right. So it creates it, nothing. Nothing is ever perfectly level. And part of the problem with techno utopianism as an ideology is that. Again, when you assume, well, now we, you know, now we're at a place in society where we have this perfectly level playing field. And so we are just going to implement these perfectly neutral tools to amplify what we have. If you're not accounting for the ways in which our society is not a level playing field, you're amplifying the wrong thing. So you're amplifying the discrepancy in power in this case between an oil company and a, and a scrappy grassroots organization that's trying to raise awareness about climate change. You're amplifying a really scary dynamic there. Is there any, so speaking of techno-utopian uh, ideology and specifically we're thinking about like Sil- Silicon Valley and, you know, coding and, and, and the explosion of, of the tech industry and everything else. And I can think of a couple of people uh, by examples of, and across the spectrum. Is it, do you, not to put you too far on the spot, is there anybody doing it the way that you, uh, sort of giving you a little hope or mm-hmm. that you think there is doing it properly? Well, uh, weirdly, one of the places where I found a little more hope and a little more nuance was at Reddit. You know, a lot of people think of Reddit as kind of just being like a trash fire of, mm-hmm. you know, hate speech and whatever. So Reddit, perhaps because they have that public perception and because they know they kind of need a, a reputational facelift, um, 
they are actually more open with journalists than a lot of these other companies. Mm -hmm. When I went around to some of these big companies in 2015, 2016 and said, hey, it seems like there are a lot of these really looming structural issues that you guys might want to address. A lot of them were not that interested in talking to me about that. And basically my, my, my pitch to them was to say, look, I'm not going to write a policy polemic book. I'm going to write a book where I just see how these very thorny issues are being worked out in real time. And just let me sit in the room and watch. Because my premise was people are going to figure out that there are always humans behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. You guys are trying to put forward this idea that it's just these algorithms and they're just pure and perfectly neutral and no human hands are ever touching these decisions which is there's it's impossible to program like that. It's just not true. Right. It, it's all built by humans. Mm-hmm. All algorithms reflect human bias. There's always someone making the decisions. And I think they were really, really interested in trying to preserve that fiction. And I just said, people are going to catch on to this. And what, what you're going to need to convince people is that you are rising to the challenge of thinking through these issues, these issues of when does hate speech become too much to bear on these platforms when is a threat just an idle threat and when is it a true threat and you need to remove the person these are questions that we've been asking in first amendment cases in in courts forever but in silicon valley it was just we'll just try it and see what happens it was just kind of the tech ethos of trial and error you know iterate move fast and break things and so my pitch was let me just watch you work this through and Facebook said no, Twitter said no, Snapchat said no, Reddit said yes. Mm -hmm. And so I went into the Reddit offices and sat there as they were working through this stuff. And, you know, a lot of it wasn't perfect. A lot of it was kind of inconsistent. They would say one thing and then kind of double back and change their mind. But the fact is they were at least showing me that they were making an effort. Mm -hmm. Responding. Yeah, because these, all these companies were founded on this ethos of we're not gatekeepers. We're just, we're just tearing things down. We're disrupting. We're, We're moving fast and breaking things. We're innovating. They are the new gatekeepers, whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. They, they are. They built these systems. They're in charge of them. You know, one of the analogies I make in the book is to a big warehouse party. You know, you want to host a big warehouse party. You open up the doors. You sort of you, – you're, you're making all these little decisions. Do you card people or not? Mm-hmm. Do you have lights or do you make it totally dark and mm-hmm. nobody can see each other? What kind of music do you play? Do you let people smoke or not? Those are the kind of decisions they were making. And yet they're sort of stepping back and saying, we're not responsible for what happens at this party. Well, you know, it's your party. Like, you made those choices early on. You set the vibe. You set the tone. Then all of a sudden, 10 years later, there are 2 billion people at your party. You got to get it under control. It's your party. So with Reddit, they they had this very libertarian, laissez-faire approach. Anyone can come to our party. You don't even, unlike Facebook, you don't even need a name. Right. You don't need an email. All you need is you make up an account and that's your thing and you can make as many accounts as you want and... It was this wild, raucous, fun party. And then they left and they went and did other companies and started other things. And then one of the two founders came back, Steve Huffman, Mm -hmm. came back 10 years later in 2015 as the CEO and essentially walked back into the warehouse party and was like, uh, yeah, there are a lot of people spiking the drinks and lighting couches on fire. Yeah. And at that point he had to shed his old ideology his old ideology was do whatever you want laissez-faire he's gotten some flack on that too hasn't he oh yeah especially from uh those who might be uh considered extremists from from extremists and also from absolutists i mean he he's gotten a lot of flack from people who their kind of glory days on the internet were all premised on this approach of techno libertarian techno utopian this is a free space do whatever you want you know and again that that's part of the vibe setting that that these early founders 
did. You know, when you start a party and you say the rules of this party are as long as what you're doing is legal under U.S. law, I will let you do whatever you want. And then you come back 10 years later and change that. You're going to get some pushback. And, and they did get some pushback. And I watched them, you know, after Charlottesville, for instance, when Charlottesville happened, Steve Huffman was on a plane. He was on Wi-Fi on the plane. He was reading news articles about the tiki torches and the, mar- the white supremacists marching through campus. He actually went to that school. He went to the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so he was unusually shocked by those images. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact that a lot of the people who were organizing that march were doing it and on Reddit. Reddit. Sure. So he was like the, the most shocked you could be by all three of those, you know, not only just as an American, but also as all those things. Mm-hmm. And I think he had to wrestle with, okay, do I pretend that I don't have a human response to this? Do I pretend that I'm just going to let my algorithms sort it out? Or do I go, yeah, you know what? I have pretty strong feelings about Nazis marching on my campus and he sort of said, yeah, I do have an emotional reaction to this and that's okay. Like, so he, so he, uh, chatted to his employees on his laptop. If these, if these people are on Reddit, I want them off. Mm-hmm. And he said, nuke them. That was his quote. And then I, he said, they, they told me like, you should be here for this. I came to the Reddit offices and I watched them oh, no kidding. as they got rid of as many of the Nazis as they could find. Um, so right the the incitement to violence and 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 things that uh, can ostensibly be traced back to social uh, media origins that doesn't seem to be a mitigating factor right now. It doesn't seem like uh, the cause and effect legally isn't isn't quite you know it's a yelling f- fire in a crowded theater type of, type of a thing. Forgive the analogy, um, but this is a guy that uh, actually took that to heart and and did the thing. So. Do you think that there's any sort of uh, governmental liability type situation like that where it needs to be held accountable? I mean, hate speech is not the same thing as a hate crime. You know, you can be, especially for the libertarian aspect of it, I should be able to say whatever the heck I want and be the most offensive person as long as that doesn't uh, lead me to murder somebody or set a church on fire or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, whereas other people are like, that's a slippery slope. It could be you, it could be something else. What, uh, where, after your experience, where do you kind of uh, see that institutionally yeah. and personally? Yeah. So it's an interesting challenge, right? Because legally, under First Amendment law, hate speech is protected. Yeah. There, there is, there is. The government can't come in and the government, do Exactly. Exactly. First Amendment. So, and the, the First Amendment protections are extremely broad, and I think they should be. Mm-hmm. There are very, very few cases where the government can prevent speech or punish you for speech. There are cases, like you say, yelling fire Mm -hmm. falsely in a crowded theater, libel, blackmail, Mm -hmm. child pornography. There are lots of cases where you can be punished for speech by the government. And but the carve outs are are few and far between in terms of threats and incitement to violence. There is a standard set in Brandenburg v. Ohio, which actually was a Klan member who this guy Brandenburg was in the Klan and he was on this at this cross burning in Ohio saying I want to start a race war. I want, you know, all these things that were incitement, sure. that were pretty much incitement. And the court said, because they're not specific and immediate enough, because they're not likely to cause specific people to do harm to specific other people at a specific time and place, these do not rise to the threshold of speech that can be punished. So that guy saying, I am in the Klan and I want to start a race war, even that was sure. protected speech. 
Right. Uh, you know, I grew up in, in uh, Chicagoland area, and I remember the Illinois Nazis and Skokie in, Skokie, the, in yeah. the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same city, in ACLA, the ACLU, of course, in journalism, this is taught all the time, too. I mean, like, you may hate the you may hate the player, but the game is, these guys have the right to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, calling, you know, when even the, the platform of the political party or the, 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 the actors in this explicitly are calling for destruction of, uh, you know, civilizations or races or, or specific people. And um, in the case of Skokie, they picked the location because it had the course, most Holocaust it, survivors it, in it. Incredibly insightful. Right. Um, but, and that, and that, that was the standard for a long time that the ACLU and all these groups would go to bat for anyone to speak on public property, mm-hmm. including Nazis, sometimes especially Nazis, right? Because that's, you have to protect the most odious right. speech. That's actually changing in a legal context. After Charlottesville, the ACLU is taking fewer and fewer of those cases. But the fact remains, uh, digitally, the cause and effect is, you know, you could have some of the most uh, uh, hateful bomb throwers online, whether they're parody or hiding behind an anonymous account or even being themselves. Um, You can't prove the cause. Like, that's a really, if it's one thing, if we're all sitting around here at a rally and somebody calls for, that's maybe a little bit more plausible than saying, like, I read a tweet and uh, I'm going to go out and do a thing. Although it could be argued that certain people are radicalized that way. Oh, it know? definitely happens. I mean, I, I, I know it happens. And you can trace back, you know, the guy who shot 11 people in the Pittsburgh synagogue. Yeah. You can go, you know, his, his accounts on Gab and all these sort of hateful social media uh, uh, platforms mm-hmm. were checked after he did this thing. And I mean, it happens again and again. The people Dylan who are, Roof, I think, Dylan had, Roof some, had some history was on, on Stormfront. The people right. who were radicalized on 8chan, you know, the guy in Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, there were several, um, HN inspired shooters, the one in Poway. So you can go back and, and see now it's very hard to get numbers and it's always hard to sort of compare uh, how many of these people would have been radicalized in other ways. And again, it's not like the, the internet invented racism or that, you know, the founders of social networks like created hatred and bigotry. I do think they're fanning the flames in pretty specific ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it's pretty clear when you spend time on some of these social networks, people are trying to incite violence pretty directly. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing that concerns me, I'm on Twitter a lot and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I see some pretty hateful stuff on there and I, it's a wild and woolly and whatever else. But for every action that you take, whether it's Jack coming down on political speech or whether they're censoring, more, I shouldn't say censoring, but when they're monitoring a little more aggressively, for every Twitter, you have a gab. For every Reddit, you have an 8chan, a 4chan, mm-hmm. then to an 8chan. So it's always sort of sneak out and popping up somewhere else. Um, is that sort of a good thing in that, uh, I, not to make a value judgment on it, but uh, at least it's the market is sort of bearing what the mainstream will will deal with on Facebook and Twitter. And then the fringes are over here. That's your outpost. That's where you belong. That's where your peers are. And we don't want to talk to you and you don't want to talk to us. What do we think about that? I mean, that's about as libertarian as it can get, and it is in this digital space. Um, right. Shall we let uh, the, I mean, I, we have no choice, right? Let people say what they want to do. Um, is that almost like a target, do you think, um, for law enforcement and things like that? I mean, I, I imagine it's almost like a FBI posing as uh, certain players and this kind of thing. It gets really dark and fuzzy and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the, extremism finding its own, uh, like, like water finding its level somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely happens. And there are definitely law enforcement people, you know, when you go into any of these a chan, 4chan, any of these forums, there are, everybody is constantly accusing everyone else of right. being a, 
uh, an undercover fed. Right. And there are undercover feds on there. I mean, they, they sort of advertise that they want these. In fact, law enforcement officers have made the case that they want these things to stay up so that they can monitor mm-hmm. people. You know, I wrote a piece, this this isn't in the book, but I wrote a piece about a guy who went on 8chan one Saturday morning and saw um, someone po- posting a manifesto and saying, I'm about to go to this synagogue in Poway. He didn't say the town, but he said, I'm going to go to a synagogue near where I live in California. I'm on my way now. And he called the FBI tip line and they took it seriously. They mm-hmm. said, you know, what's the information you have? They looked at it and there just wasn't enough time. I mean, eight minutes later, the guy was shooting mm-hmm. at the synagogue. So it's not clear to me how much law enforcement can solve the situation. I think whether it's, you know, arresting people for real world violence or whether it's kicking people off platforms for incitements to violence or for hate speech or for just bad ideas or for misinformation, whenever you're talking about just enforcement mechanisms, I think you're kind of too many causal steps too late down the chain. I think, you know, because we, we talk and, you know, it's useful to talk about should this person or that person be kicked off? You know, it's, it's, Remarkable to me that Richard Spencer and David Duke still have Twitter accounts. And I mean, so it's worth talking about those things. And, you know, Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos don't have Twitter accounts and it has really decimated their revenue stream. Right. But oh, there was a thing there where they were saying you're just going to make these guys more popular if you do that when clearly the opposite. Has yeah, happened it didn't happen. And, and I think it's worth knowing, you know, what what effects these things have. It does decimate their income when you deplatform them. It doesn't mean you should do it arbitrarily or that you should do it willy-nilly based on just not liking them or something. But if they violate your rules and you take them off, it does have an effect. Mm-hmm. It also – it does have an effect when you reduce hate speech on places like Reddit. It's been studied and I go through the data in my book. You know, it's – when you reduce hate speech, you actually reduce the number of people who get radicalized. It's It's been shown pretty conclusively. Um now, again, it doesn't mean you do it arbitrarily or to try to wield it as an enemy, you know, weapon against your political enemies, obviously. But it, it there are things you can do. Um, I just I think we need to be thinking broadly and systemically rather than sort of saying, well, once we get rid of a few of these bad apples, you know, the problem will be taken care of. I think by the time you're that far down the chain, it's in almost in a sense too late. I think, you know, if we want, I think the informational crisis we're facing right now is kind of like the climate crisis or like the infrastructure crisis we were talking about earlier. You can talk about where at the end of the chain to to move things here or there at the margins, but I think we we, we have a lot of work to do. I think we need to rebuild the whole information ecosystem. So, right. There's a distinction between sort of cynical contrarianism versus and, and you know, being a, an edgelord and being, a, you know, a provocative for provocative sake versus actual um, you know, organizing to, to do destructive activities or criminal activities or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not to be confused. We're kind of, uh, contrasting this with like the dark web and selling drugs or prostitution or all sorts of stuff that you can do on the dark web. Some of this is explicitly for, we want this to be public in the way that the law enforcement wants to be able to see it. The same thing is like, I want you to be able to come if I'm Richard Spencer or somebody else, I want to be able to give you the opportunity to just be unreasonable, throwing some stuff out here. And that's that kind of stuff uh, that I agree that it's, it's a little bit worrisome because it's almost like wolf in sheep's clothing kind of a thing. And if you are keeping a guy like that on online uh, and I see plenty of people getting kicked off for responding to some of this kind of hate speech and then they'll gang up on that person, report them and, and do the thing. So there's definitely some manipulation by some media savvy. Uh, For sure. People. Yeah. Um, as far as, uh, you know, you have a chapter in here, the news of the future, what you've you just touched on it a little bit as far as uh, how you think the restructuring, what do you think that looks like? 
Um, so I think the the core problem. I think there are many individual problems, but I think the core problem here is we've built systems to prioritize what scientists call high arousal emotion. Sure. And and what that means is when you're on these platforms, which you know you might have anecdotal cases where you know my kid's not on Twitter, or my kid's not on Facebook, but like there are huge numbers of people on this stuff. The numbers keep growing. Right. So we we can't sort of take refuge and say, well, if I log off, then I'm good. And like you're still dealing with other people. Yeah, you're a student, you're dealing with all your peers are still on it, and you're still dealing with that peer pressure. Yeah, this sure. is this is still. I mean, these things are are affecting all of our elections, all of our political outcomes, all of our global civic outcomes. It's not you can't just opt out of it. We live in a society. As yeah, the, as the common Twitter refrain. Exactly. So so, in terms of how we rebuild it, there are a lot of financial incentives pointing in the other direction. But I think. Similar to the way that, you know, tobacco executives have every financial incentive to get eight-year-olds hooked on bubblegum-flavored tobacco, mm-hmm. and through a combination of governmental and non-governmental incentives, we as a society push back against that and say, actually, if you get eight-year-olds hooked on peppermint-flavored tobacco, you're a monster and you shouldn't be able to sleep at night. I think there's a lot of that that, that can be leveraged. Some social, uh, so there's some social costs in there as well. You Absolutely. Know, that's, a, that's beyond the regulation. It's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, 20 years ago and 30 years ago, smoking section in every restaurant. Yep. And nowadays, you know, you can't have it. Yep. Um, and so I think some of that is government and some of it is just, yeah, civic engagement. Well, so we've seen some of the things like, uh, you know, Facebook's tried uh, not to single out Facebook, but they've tried to do like, you know, this is a trusted news source or they've, do, you know, they've, Otherwise denoted uh, or explicitly connoted the um, uh, that this is a trusted source or, the, you know, prioritizing that thing. But you're saying or we should probably all agree that uh, it's the 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 infrastructure beneath it. It's the actual algorithms themselves that if I if I absolutely throw a bomb on Twitter, that's going to get a lot more reaction than just like, you know, hey, I had a lunch with the uh, with right. uh, with so and so, which, you know. I don't know how you do that, but I'm not a programmer myself. Yeah. But it's and clearly it's always, loaded to do that. Yeah, and 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 to be clear, it's always been there. There's always been a, a, a if it bleeds, it leads kind sure. of you know ethos right. in the in the media. There's always been sensationalism, and the the issue is that a lot of that has just been sort of you know you put stuff out there and you see how many people buy copies of your paper. This is algorithmically designed to create feedback loops mm-hmm. and to to do you know it's called the matthew principle the 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 thing that gets more attention it snowballs and it gets more and more attention Mm -hmm. so you know it you could write the algorithms in such a way that instead of incentivizing emotional engagement you incentivize something that's more civically useful something that's more what people need rather than what people want and then you know there there it's very convenient for the founders of these companies to rely on sort of uh, ideas about individual agency and say, hey, this is just what people are choosing to click on. Reflecting the society. Reflecting. Right. But the right. thing is, it's not a flat reflection. It's not like a real mirror. It's like a warped right. funhouse mirror. And if you if you hand people something so strongly suggestively tilted in one direction and then you engage their lizard brains and make them super reactive and twitchy and emotionally agitated – and then they act in a way that's more emotionally agitated. And then you say, well, that's on you. You know, that's your decision. It's like putting people in the middle of, of a big casino and saying, well, why'd you stay in the casino all night? Well, because you didn't have any windows in the casino and because mm-hmm. you pumped it full of oxygen and you gave me free drinks. You did all mm-hmm. these behavioral cues. And then you're blaming me for my gambling addiction. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, or if, or if you had the world's biggest grocery store chain and 
99% of the aisles were full of Doritos and, and Chips Ahoy. And you said, well, why is everybody getting fat all of a sudden? Like, yeah, they could have fat, had the individual agency to walk through the entire labyrinth of the grocery store to find the kale. But like, come on, you know, realistically, that's not going to happen. So as a result, are you hopeful that uh, we're going to reach a sort of critical point or a tipping point where that becomes the situation? Have we already done that? Or, uh, I mean, the, the, it's a, it's an, it's, it, I think we all agree that something should needs to be done, not to be the yeah. hair on fire or whatever else. But how realistic? I mean, wh- who's going to do it? You know, uh, obviously we have a gridlock in, in DC, and and they have half of the half of the, the folks there. Not to you know, it's a little tired, but they don't really understand any of this stuff. Right. It seems right. uh, based on hearings that you're having with uh, uh, with some of these tech guys. What, what's your opinion on that? Well. You know, I, I think in fairness to Congress, the first hearing was pretty pathetic. The second hearing in Congress was better. When they mm-hmm. questioned Zuckerberg, they seemed to know a little bit, little bit more about what they were doing. And, you know, AOC really took him to task. And yeah. there were a few people who got in some, some really young blood on some good day. jabs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and look, it can't all be government. There's things government could do, but it can't do it alone. I mean, to me, I'm biased because I've just finished this book project. But I think that one of the first steps is to really just look look carefully and specifically at this stuff and really get up to speed almost at a, in a narrative way about like how we got here. The reason I spent three years embedding with this world of people is not that I'm a masochist and I would rather hang around with Nazis and trolls than with my own family. Sure. It's that if we don't look carefully at and specifically and chart it and say, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you unravel <laughs> the fabric of democracy. It's one thing to sort of have the feeling that like, man, I can't trust anyone. I can't know what's true. It's another thing to look at how we got here, feel like you understand it in a really kind of cinematic panoramic way Mm -hmm. and then go, okay, everyone who has engaged with it at that level has gone. All right. The way I engage personally on the internet is now different. And the way I think about it systemically is now different just because they know more. Sure. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, um, sort of the yellow journalism of, uh, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, a profusion of, of media. It reminds me a little bit of that, that there's a, you know, newspaper on every corner and they say whatever the heck they want and whatever else. Eventually, um, you know, with uh, the federal standards and, you know, you have the, you used to have the fairness doctrine and things like that. It's all been an evolution. I wonder if that's the type of stuff. To me, it's, uh, it's completely archaic though, not just uh, decades and a century old, it's also like you can't a you can't expect meaningful action. It seems to me it moves too quickly in the in the digital space than government can ever hope to do. So um, it it almost seems like it's a like a like a peer process or something along those lines. But uh, institutionally, it reminds me of the same thing. And eventually, a lot of this extreme stuff is gonna sort of die off, if nothing else, because the social horror at it. Mm. I mean. We talk about all the time, like what, only 10% of the population is on Twitter. But if you're on Twitter and only 10% of those people are actually the inspiration or the thought leaders on it or whatever, if you really kind of put it in perspective on that, like in 10 or 15 years or something, like there may be some sort of revulsion that, the you know, polite society has returned a little bit that, uh, you know, any any instigation like this is not sort of chuckled at or looked the other way. It's sort of like identify this and, and do it, which... there's uncomfortable things about thought police and and things like that. But, uh, you know, it almost seems like as a survival mechanism, this is a social behavioral type of a a response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, maybe we will 
come to a place where we naturally tune this stuff out. And But I think we need to work to get there. I don't think it'll happen on its own. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's one story. There's a lot of people in the book. It's kind of a, a cast of ensemble cast of characters. But there's one young woman who I spent many, many hours with who got really sucked down the rabbit hole of white nationalism and really got taken in and really converted into the cult of white nationalism. And she wasn't she didn't grow up in a racist family. She grew up in this nice, you know, New Jersey home with lots of multiracial friends. And she's a very smart person. She really, um, you know, I was just talking to her earlier today. She's uh, really, really actually sharp and engaged, but she just didn't have the context to know the propaganda when she saw it. And she got sucked all the way in and she she went to the upper echelons. Red pilled, as they say. She got red pilled hard mm-hmm. and she got to the upper echelons of white nationalism and that she got out. And so I, I, I you know, I go into I, I can't go into the full story here, but sure. I but she got out in a way that makes me feel that even the people who are the most vulnerable to this stuff, they can find a way out and they can unscramble their brains. It, it can happen on an individual level. It can happen on a societal level. We can do it. And I, I chart in great detail how it happened to her, who helped her get out, how she unscrambled herself at great risk and danger to herself. She she escaped from the movement. I mean, when she called me and told me her story, she was on the run, essentially. I mean, she was like essentially in her own personal witness protection program. And she was so dedicated to getting her story out there and, and helping other people be inoculated against this. In a sense, it's scary because if you talk to her, you would never believe that she was susceptible to this. And mm-hmm. you're like, if she is susceptible, anyone is susceptible. Yeah. On the other hand, the fact that she was able to be that high up and have all the incentives pointing against her leaving and still leave and still become, you know, get unread pilled and get back to the normie world. Mm-hmm. People can do it. Yeah, that's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could talk about this stuff all day and I, and I would love to. And I'm sure that we'll have lots of uh, opinions all over the, the spectrum in our in our comments and our in our um, uh, on the podcast as well as the, the YouTube. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'd love to keep going. Uh, too much to cover. The book is Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation from Viking Books. Andrew Morantz, thank you for being here this week. Thank you. Uh, much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to people's opinions. I hope there's a lot of them. I, you know, we never have any shortage. And this one in particular, I mean, this this topic is as current as it gets. Yeah. And this definitely hits, especially, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about this on the show is that uh, you can comment in various ways. In Facebook, you need a particular uh, you, you need a profile and that kind of thing. With YouTube, you don't need that kind of stuff. So sometimes we get the the, the most honest or at least the most um, uh, raw uh, comments. So we will we will see what we will see as far as that goes. Um, do you want to give any uh, contact information, uh, your Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I think the, the best uh, Twitter is just at Andrew Marantz, Andrew, M-A-R-A-N-T-Z. I'm not on there very often because social media is bad for your brain, but I, I try to check in every now and then. <laughs> I need to, I'm, I, I, I have a little bit of a Twitter addiction myself and uh, it is not uh, you know, it's a demonstrable anxiety some weeks for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, well, again, thank you, Andrew Morantz. Uh, check out the book. Uh, it's called Antisocial Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. And that's our bonus episode for this week. Thanks again, Andrew. Find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher and Google Play and on YouTube. Get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, True Crime Daily Podcast reminding you, don't do crimes. Don't do crimes.